0: This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at BNE.eu. So, oh, hello, everyone. Um, ben Harris here. I'm the editor of BNE IntelliNews. I'm joined today by Maximilian Hess, uh, who's an analyst covering CIS uh, and Eurasia in general, and also a um, specialist, uh, an expert, I would like to say, in um, debt and bonds, in so much as he always says so very clever things about it on Twitter. Um, today, for your information, um, we are hosting this via Zoom, but there's also a concurrent version being streamed onto YouTube, and you can watch this later at our YouTube channel, any Entertainment is YouTube. And at the same time, hello to everyone who's listening to us on Spaces. Um, we are recording this on Spaces, and um, uh, hopefully we haven't got any feedback problems. But um, if we do, please let us know. So, Max, welcome. Very good to see you.
1: Sure. Good to see you, and certainly an exciting time to be uh, talking about my favorite subjects.
0: <laughs> yeah, the timing is perfect, isn't it? Last night, uh, or rather this morning, the deadline expired on the OFAC, um, the special license number nine A, that allows Russian and Russians uh, to pay their debt obligations in dollars. So in theory, Russia, um, Russia and the state and and the companies can no longer make uh, payments on their bonds. So we're headed towards default. Uh, I think when we drill into it, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So um, everybody, I I don't know, there's a certain amount of debt out there. And the Russian state has been paying and showed itself able and willing to pay. Mm. Um, But To dive in at the the main question, I mean, how serious a change is this? How big a thing is it? Nuclear option that's been talked about by banning Russians from being able to pay with
1: dollars? So, you know, I think the, the, the biggest and most impactful sanctions move that we've seen was already the, the sort of main initial one we saw after Russia's February 24th invasion, which was the banning of the Russian Central Bank uh, and its addition to the SDN, specifically designated nationals list, on the 28th of February. All these moves sort of really follow on from that. General License 9A, the one that you um, were just discussing, expired today, and that had allowed the processing of these transactions. So, um, but we'd already seen a number of changes from that. And essentially the noose has been ever tightened uh, around Russian debt to the point now where it is certain that they will default um, or effectively certain barring some, you know, major geopolitical change, Russian withdrawal from Ukraine, something I think we don't expect, uh, and it's certainly not in that time period, uh, on on those next bond payments that are coupon payments due on the 23rd of June, they'll then have a 30-day grace period to make them, but so that's when it will formally happen, but technically uh, one should understand Russia effectively as having already been in default for quite some time now, even if none of these technical triggers were met because of some of their fudges with payments around the OFZs, their selective repayment of domestic uh-huh. bondholders in rubles. Um, so, you know, this is really sort of the last step, but the Russians will have already made clear their argument will be this shouldn't be considered a default because they were willing to pay and they were forced to pay. And that has very significant implications for how okay. this will play out in the legal system over the long-term.
0: Okay. So you basically code
1: everything in <laughs> that. Uh, let's backtrack a little bit,
0: um, and a couple of specifics, right, I' be clear. The license allowed specifically, and it just affects U.S. citizens, that they are no longer allowed to accept dollars from Russia. That, that's the actual technical rule here, isn't
1: it?: So that, Go on. Uh, U.S. persons, um, which is a much, much, much broader definition than, than right. U.S. citizens, um, because it effectively means uh, anybody with any connection to the dollar, which in the modern financial system is anybody serious. Yeah.
0: And does it apply to, because I mean, several of the bonds, um, the, the next one that's coming up on Friday 27th is um, in just two days, a million coupon payment, isn't it? Or no? That's one in July. June. There's one.
1: There's one in June. There was one that was due to today. Um, uh, coupon payments. And so they paid it. They, they paid it early. They prepaid it early. Yes. So that uh, this see. goes into that argument, so they can say we didn't actually default. We were, um, you know, effectively uh the victims of hostile state action that that right. from when we were willing to default i would say the russians are being a bit cheeky with that and i don't think the courts in the very long term are going to be sympathetic to that argument but of course if you're russia you're hoping that all this eventually gets litigated many many years from now which yeah. lack of a sovereign well, bankruptcy mechanism means that's the case
0: now let's come to the legal stuff in a bit um the i'm looking at the schedule so there's like half a dozen bonds between now and um June 24th, uh, all of them, except the last one, the one we just mentioned, um, they also provide um, for payments in euros and sterling and in Swiss francs. Do so I understand this right, that Russia has the option then of paying for, you know, the other three, four, three, the one's already been paid, the other three bonds coming up before the last one in June. They have the option of paying, settling those in euros or sterling or or Swiss francs, and that's not sanctioned, they can go ahead and make those payments. Uh,
1: Well, that's a very complicated question, Um, because uh, the banks involved in processing those payments are US persons. my, I am not a lawyer, but my inclination would be to say that, especially given the most recent treasury language in, in, in the most recent statement announcing this move, that the license wouldn't be renewed, I do not think they're likely to be willing to do so unless they get very explicit guidance. Now, these are a particularly interesting mechanism because uh, the, that language was introduced after the annexation of Crimea uh, when Russia returned to capital markets for for its sovereign in in 2016 and 2017. And initially it was just Swiss francs, pounds or euros. Mm. And then after that first issuance, um, which I think is one that has a coupon payment due in September and March. So not one of the ones coming up now. um, uh, They also included rubles in them as well. And I made a big stink about this at the time saying that these bonds Uh, effectively had gigantic haircuts priced into them and the market didn't treat them that way. uh, And that anybody holding these bonds um, was in a much worse position. Now, ultimately the way it's played out is that everybody holding Russian bonds has been a very bad uh, position, uh, except for maybe one or two people who traded very quickly and and, and declines. Uh, But those will be an issue that I think gets dealt with in in the restructuring over the long term, not one that gets dealt with now in the next few weeks. But it,
0: it remains, in theory, possible to be able to pay you know, the, the upcoming bonds, especially the ones, well, the four, the one that was yes. paid off was denominated in euros. The ones that are due after that, between now and the end of June, are all denominated in dollars. But in theory, the Russians will argue that, look, you can pay in euros, and that's not sanctioned, so we can do that. But then, as you say, there's the willingness to do this, which plays into this, because the bonds that have been paid so far um, the Russians were willing, but the, the, the paying banks or the, the counterparty banks um, they actually didn 't want to touch it with a barge pole, and there was this whole process of getting of fact the U.S uh, yeah. state Treasury Department to sign off individually explicitly on each individual payment, you will not be sanctioned if you handle this money and then it went through, which caused all sorts of delays, but they all went through no?
1: Well. So we saw sort of two changes in that process. Initially, right after the central bank sanctions were announced, this license enabled payments to go through and the Russians used some of their frozen money uh, that had been frozen under the sanctions. Treasury then said that that wasn't allowed um, and they could only use new funds that uh, had come in essentially to Russia since the war, effectively taking some of the surplus uh, oil and gas money earned from the record high hydrocarbon prices we've seen over the last three months. Uh, interestingly, Russia paid it through a, a state mortgage bank, Dondal uh, which isn't sanctioned to process it. I don't think it was actually their money, but uh, there's a little bit of uncertainty there. But on the point then about Um, you know, the banks processing these. One of the other changes that we saw with that renewed issuance after Crimea was a move to have the underwriting banks be Russian banks and the book builders as well. But the correspondent banks who handle the payments out into the US system. Those mm-hmm. are the ones who, who uh, really matter. Uh, and those are the ones who I think will not be willing to process these kind of transactions, even if they're in euros, Swiss francs or, or pounds and, and the Europeans may be wrong their sanctions. couldn't, well, couldn't the systems.
0: mechanism that's been used until now um, whereby when someone like Sevastar were trying to transfer their money and then they went to Citibank, I think it was, and then Citi rang the state uh, Treasury Department said, like, is this okay? I mean, we want explicit use yeah. of paper say, this is okay. And couldn't that same mechanism function going forward in so much as um, whoever, Russian Railways, wants to make a euro payment on a, to settle a dollar bomb because it says it's in the covenant it's allowed to. And if they ring the state Treasury Department again and say, like, do you sign off on? This? Because yes. technically, it seems to me it is possible because euros are not sanctioned.
1: Um, you know, yes, they could receive uh, that approval, but, um, you know, th- there's two matters to consider here, right? From one from the US, pol- both are essentially from a US policy perspective, but one is you don't want to support the development of these kind of causes in other countries' uh, bonds in case it weakens uh, the dollar's role. And then secondly, making this stuff really complicated and essentially, Dragging it all through the weeds and making it an unpleasant experience is part of, at least in my view, the US's strategy. They don't want it Mm. to be easy to deal with, get money out of, make money with, have the Russians. Be able to have access to capital uh, in the long term. So, if you're a market participant and you look at it from a you know business investor point of view, you say, oh, well, the Russians are still willing to pay despite this. Uh, um, you know, why shouldn't this be allowed? These other contracts were agreed before. You have to remember that the you know the policy decisions driving these are not uh, about um, even Western. They don't even really take Western investors you know considerations. Um, into heart, but it's really about U.S. foreign policy and how do we essentially weaken and mm. make things more difficult from Russia. And that will motivate over any other interest. Think even if the bond stock was larger and Westerners or Americans held more of it, I, I still think that would be the case because even if you take all the Russian corporate debt together, it's not a systemic risk uh, for, yeah. for the
0: U.S. Um, before we go into further into the weeds, um, a couple of other basic questions. Exactly how much does Russia have outstanding because i keep saying this 40 billion dollars but we have to differentiate don't we between the international euro bond and the foreign held domestic ruble debt the OFZs. sure and i think those are two different numbers 40 billion that relates to the euro bonds does it not
1: yeah that, that relates to the euro bonds um the the russian central bank has stopped publishing good data on foreign uh OFZ holdings since mm. um sanctions began i assume uh, based on some of the market turbulence that we saw uh, at the end of uh, February, that it essentially crashed overnight, and then that a lot of that got dumped, prompting some of the Russian central bank uh, interventions in, in, into that market. Because um, there was um, about twenty percent held by foreigners. Foreigners I mean, before, the
0: peace, yeah. The peak uh, was thirty-four, but the, uh, the uh, debt was... stock
1: that really matters here in the very long term is that forty billion foreign debt um, that, that, that you were speaking of, uh, denominated mostly under, under euro bonds under um, British not american law actually which is another fascinating you know aspect of this it's america that's determining everything but these bonds are actually written under british law and the british government has sort of deferred essentially to, to the u.s for uh, its leadership on this i would like to see some more policy action from britain but that's a point perhaps for later but on those OFZs, that you know the russian capital controls have effectively stopped um those from being attractive in any way or people from who held them from being able to repatriate their cash after unless they get explicit permission from the Kremlin which I haven't seen anybody getting but it it may just be that nobody notable has tried Um, I'm sure some people have actually to be fair um, especially Russian government connected entities Uh, but you know essentially you know that's the difference between investing in euro bonds and international debt and investing in domestic debt. when you invest in euro bonds you invest not only in a hard currency but essentially with the full backing of the British legal System and, and you think that that gives you a comfort, that's uh, and you know is, is also a reason for why some of these companies, um, not just the sovereign, will ultimately borrow on, on international capital markets. But when you borrow domestically in, in Russia, whether it be in corporate or, or sovereign debt, you mm-hmm. essentially agree there to have Russian law uh, be the only one that applies. Russia would like its mm-hmm. laws to apply more to the British debt as well, but uh, that revolves around some of the changes in the legal language. So, and again, uh, a basic
0: Question. Uh, I understand that the, of the 40 billion international debt, but only about another billion dollars is due for repayment. I mean, there's the, what is it, 160 million due at the end of June, but then after that, there's another billion
1: to be paid this year. Is that right? Yeah, so if I remember correctly, Russia doesn't have any other um, euro bonds that mature this year. Uh, The Mm. last one that matured was that big one at the beginning of February. Uh, But what they did was they gave rubles to domestic holders. They Mm. said, you know, you have a choice, please uh, you know, come bring these um, and, and we'll repay you a week early in, in in rubles. But it was quite clear that any domestic holders didn't have them. So they lowered their foreign currency liability there uh, quite a bit. Now, uh, Russia does have, you know, a lot of bond maturities coming up. And I think, you know, that's in terms of beginning to think about the long term impacts of the economy, right? It's impossible for Russia to get any new debt on, uh, uh, on Western, at least capital markets, anytime soon. And China doesn't seem to be willing. And the analogy that I like to draw there, right, is what makes debt so powerful is the ability to move money over time. You know, you can get a mortgage on a house that you can't afford that year with your predicted earnings from future years. For sovereigns, this is really important for uh, their domestic investment. But the other thing that's really good about it in sovereigns is it essentially increases the hard money supply, because normally sovereigns don't ever just allow their bonds to uh, mature and not issue new debts. But normally if you have a billion dollars in debt maturing, you'll then borrow a new billion dollars, hopefully at a lower interest rate, at least relative to um, your credit rating. And that is now impossible for Russia. So that's where we start to talk about these really long-term economic impacts.
0: So on that point, I mean, with only a billion dollars or so, with only a billion dollars or so due this year, and given that in just April, Russia, earned whatever it was, $28 billion from gas exports. So money is not really the issue here. And as far as the budget is concerned, that Russia has never issued Eurobonds, at least in the last decade or so. It's never issued Eurobonds to actually finance the budget. It doesn't need to. It's got plenty of money at home, and the growth of the OFZ yeah. market is the source of whatever capital it wants to raise, that mintin wants to raise to fund the budget. So um, in that sense, this whole thing is a storm in a teacup because it's fairly irrelevant. The only reason why Russia was issuing Eurobonds in the first place was to give a pricing point a benchmark so that corporates yeah. who are going to London could have something to price themselves against you know, this is sovereign plus whatever. So in that sense, um, this doesn't make any difference, but you were talking about, you know, Russia going to places like China and to raise money. And um, if these sanctions continue, if we have the huge economic contraction we're expecting, if Russia loses, you know, a big chunk of its oil revenue, then actually all of this might start to make a difference that Russia will become a normal country that doesn't have that subsidy from hydrocarbons and will need to raise money abroad. But surely all of that's like way in the future, a couple of years down the road. I mean it's to take that long to yeah. unwind the oil and gas revenue thing.
1: No, uh, you know, a lot of this really is looking at the very long term. And as, as we were saying earlier, that's part of the, you know, at least my view of the U.S. intent to make this also difficult is that it's not the kind of thing that's just going to get picked up and put back together. You're right. Russia hasn't needed to borrow on international capital markets for funding purposes. Uh, as I said, the difference between, you know, just oil revenues and the like is the more borrowing you can do effectively expands your uh, money supply of hard currency, which is in, in important for currencies over over the long term and for economic investment uh, separately from just any surplus budget revenues from uh, oil which aren't renewable in the same way or at least uh, uh, unless oil prices uh, go back up. And I think you know that's something that we're really looking at for the long term as the US knows that in the current environment. Um, Russia has enough dollars in hard currency, and the point of this isn't to uh, quote-unquote bankrupt Russia, um, but to make things uh, really difficult to invest, sustain, and loan in the long term. And for example, this is a tiny bit tangential, but I think is, is newsworthy enough it's important to discuss quickly, is we see that with the rubles for gas demand, right? The One of the other impacts of these central bank sanctions and the like has been to really uh, cut off ruble convertibility and the amount of, of rubles traded for dollars is, is you know, down 90% or 80% since uh, the war began. Russian imports are cratering. Again, while they have these dollars coming in, that's okay and they can feed the dollars back into the people and system. As you will know, however, demand for dollars in, in Russia typically uh, from importers and like is highly cyclical. Uh, there are periods where, where demand really picks up. We And and essentially what the West is doing now is not preparing for one month, two months from now, but preparing for uh, the really long term. And if right. you know sanctions continue to be imposed on Russian oil and gas, eventually those surpluses will go away. Eventually Russia will then have a dearth of uh, foreign yeah. currency.
0: But so that's several years away.
1: Um, before we go on, I just want to say to
0: everyone who's listening and watching us on Zoom, um, that if you want to ask questions, you may, you can use the chat function in the bar at the bottom and we will see your questions and address them, uh, relevant ones as they come up. Um, another specific point in the lead up to the events yesterday, um, people have been saying that there was a debate in Treasury um, that one of the ideas was to allow Russia to continue to meet and service its debt, as that would be a way of bleeding away hard currency that Russia could then use for the war machine. Yeah. However, Yellen, I think, made it quite clear, and I think she said explicitly that, um, it's not necessary in so much as the amount of money that's involved is so small, that it's gonna make no difference to the Kremlin's ability to fund the war. But that's the case, isn't it? When we're talking about a small amount of money in effect compared to the, whatever it is, $300 million a day Russia's spending. I mean, in
1: That's that's exactly right. You know, I I don't think that, I think that's why that decision was, you know, knock on with it. Uh, In some ways, if Russia had a larger debt stock or the like, maybe it would still be um, uh, willing to pay it. Uh, Or maybe the US would still be willing to let them pay. Um, I think a whole bunch of strategic decisions would would have been made differently in in both Russia and the West. So I don't want to say that that's a definite uh, counterfactual. Um, But yeah, the the, the amount of Russian payments that get on this are are not going to affect Russia's ability to wage war. But over the very long term, uh, Russia's cut off from Western capital markets, does leave it uh, in, in a position where, uh, one, it has to eventually settle all of these claims before it goes back. And that requires some kind of, at least quasi-diplomatic um, resolution or almost certainly officially diplomatic now, given just given the mm-hmm. treasury regulations uh, and State Department actions involved, um, and, and is really, you know, uh, forward-looking and saying, you know, we have to make clear that doing, you know, I think it's part of a realization that in 2014, the sectoral sanctions, uh, you know, they did disincentivize loans and credits to Russian businesses. Rosneft and Gazprom went from being such large borrowers from you know, European banks to, to being relatively small, at least compared to their size. Um, Rosneft, in particular, given its applicability from the sectoral sanctions, but they were viewed as things to sort of work around for how to have a working relationship uh, mm. with Russia. This now is basically saying. Um, you can't find workarounds. We are, you know, until there is a new kind of Russia to have a relationship with. Uh, yeah. This isn't going to go. And that's something I think people have to really consider. You know, um, Sudan, which is the most recent one to sort of cure its sanctions result, and also had a very, you know, relatively small internationally debt stock when it. Got into a whole bunch of issues in the early uh, 1980s. You know, it was 40 years for uh, it to be restored. Um, Obviously, Mm. Cuba, Venezuela, Iran. There's various lawsuits going on around all those for anywhere between five years to five decades. So, Mm. uh, when sanctions get involved in this stuff, unless a country really outright loses a a, a war, like we saw with maybe Japan or Germany after World War II, uh, these issues last for years and potentially decades.
0: Decades, yes. And specifically. Again, to get up another point, the the license, the general license uh, 9A, it doesn't, it won't affect the OFZ business. I mean, that's more a function of the SWIFT sanctions, that you, you, it's very difficult to to move uh, money backwards and forwards. But in theory, again, a foreign investor could buy an OFZ if he wanted to and not be subject to sanctions? Um,
1: mm, uh, I... New. I would have to double check the wording around new issuance of Russian debt. It may be the old ones. Old ones, I think, yes. New ones, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm not. There's sure. a ban on
0: primary, but that's specifically for eurobonds, isn't it? Not? The, yeah. Uh,
1: um. I, I. You know. Again, I just have to double check the language. But old ones, yes, it's possible. But again, you know, it's it. Also, Russia's own capital controls uh, make it a real um uh, yeah. issue. Yeah. So um, look, one of the core issues here, I mean, we're talking
0: about potential default. Um, but as we've discussed, actually Russia's got plenty of money and the amount it needs to repay is really quite small. And the Kremlin and even more so the companies have made it perfectly clear that they have the money and they're actually very keen to pay this debt. And what's going on here, we have a weird default whereby you've got the bond issuer who has the money, is willing to repay, but because the US has blocked their ability to pay, it's going to default through no fault of its own.
1: So is that a default? Well, uh, uh, no fault of its own is, 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 a, is a very you know um, uh, cheeky no way to discussion. put it. I'll put it that way. <laughs> um, I, I would say, you know again, I, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not um, arguing legal advice. I do think it's important to highlight that this will be educated by British courts, not American courts. I don't mm. think British courts are any more likely to be um, uh, you know, to, to consider Russia credulous, uh, let's say, uh, you know, I certainly believe in legal realism um, and, and that, that the reality of political events affects how uh, courts look at things. Um, even if, you know, in an ideal world, maybe it shouldn't. Um, so, you know, I, I do think we'll get those. That, that is certainly the right argument Russia will make.
0: Because uh, Russia but, will come with force majeure. I mean, exactly, we have the but, money. But
1: the sanctions on Russia are so Stride in, in in other matters and accepting direct state payments. Uh, Britain has its own sanctions now on providing professional services uh, to Russia, uh, right. and of course, even, even in London, where there you know a large number of law firms have you know been involved in what are known as slaps and uh, have have long had a big business working with with uh, the Russian sovereign. Uh, there's you know been pretty clear that. Uh, the U- UK government doesn't take a positive view of that. Some, you know, services have directly been banned, uh, and so for Russia to get the the best reputa- representation in those arguments uh, is already going to be difficult. And then even having them considered credible is going to be difficult. And you know, on your point, one last thing, you know, about weird defaults, you know, to adapt from the famous quote, you know, uh, every sovereign default is weird and unhappy in its own way. Uh, right. you know, no, no two right, I don't yeah. like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh and so you know yes it is weird but we there is plenty of history of uh political decisions causing uh, defaults. The most recent one, although they'd already begun to default on some stuff, is, is Venezuela, and perhaps the best mm-hmm. um And the Russians, ironically, did some financing for the Venezuelans after that, that uh, uh, proved how difficult it is to get around some of these sanctions because they ran into their own issues. But then the best example that I can think of and that I keep harking back to, even though it was in a different capital markets world, uh, is 1941 uh, with the uh, invocation of the uh, Trading with the Enemy Act on Japan that. Right. It was all Japanese business, trade, and debt payments, and caused huge uh, disruption to, to Japanese imports. You know, it's a topic mm. for someone else. How large a role that played in Tokyo's ultimate decision to invade? Um, but the, there was no uh, sort of legal repercussions, legal standard in the U.S. Um, for acting hostily, there. We may actually get some interesting legal precedent at some point uh, from another Russia-involved case because it's here in the UK, which is Russia and Ukraine's own Euro bond dispute about a bond uh, that we're still waiting for a a judgment there. 3 billion plus a lot more in interest that the Russians demand now, given that the
0: bond has been in default for uh, seven years. But isn't this where this is all heading? I mean, the Yanukovych bonds uh, three billion from whenever it was 20, 2014. Uh, yeah. or even 2013. December twenty
1: thirteen. Yeah, December twenty thirteen. Yeah. They were supposed to issue more the day that Yanukovych was ousted. They were ultimately supposed to issue fifteen billion. Uh, that's and
0: right.
1: Billion got done.
0: But that's been in the court forever. I mean, isn't this argument? I mean, over this, isn't this where it's headed? It's going to go to the courts, and then it's going to sit there for, for forever. Forever an and um,
1: You know the the sort of. The argument that we've uh, had from the Supreme Court, or that we had in front of the Supreme Court here was essentially Ukraine arguing that it was forced to, uh, into this debt at gunpoint and that yeah. you know, Russia included a bunch of terms in it that were very uh, clearly aimed to push it into default. The um, Russian argument to you know just at least get to say what they will argue, even if, again, I don't consider it credible, um, is is the Russians were very, very smart in what they were doing and had very good legal advice. And they structured it as something that was both a private market debt and uh, what's known as an official debt, an intergovernmental debt. And Russia's formerly a member of the Paris club, the body where, countries go mm-hmm. to organize their debts from state to state uh and they tried to argue it was both uh a, a lot of u.s treasury pressure got the capital markets to treat it as if it wasn't so it didn't get involved in the private debt restructuring that we know all about from ukraine uh, in, in 2015 2016 um but also with a point that the russians really harked about and that uh I thought was political and I thought it was facetious uh, and silly of the IMF to very strongly deny it, although I understand why they do, um, but was that the IMF changed its rules and for its own support for Ukraine after the Russian invasion in 2014, uh, allowed countries to borrow uh, that were in arrears to another official creditor for the first time, essentially negating that peg Hmm. of um, Russia's strategy. And at the time, Dmitry Medvedev, uh, the then Prime Minister, uh, Russia's former president placeholder for Putin. Uh, he described this as opening the Pandora's box of uh, international finance. Now, my view is that international finance has been subject to uh, political whimmery since it first existed in ancient Mesopotamia. Um, but, you know, that is the, the Russian point of view. And I think that that led them to have a more hostile relationship with it and to do some of the, um, again, things I would describe as cheeky, like those alternative currency payment event clauses in, in, in the more recent bonds.
0: So look, up until now, we've been talking about pain inflicted on Russia, but we should point out that we're talking a total of $40 billion external debt. That's held by Western investors. Those Western investors are going to lose $40 billion. $40 billion was the same amount that when the GKO market blew up in the last famous default in 98, the GKO markets were worth $40 billion. Of course, $40 billion a day is less than yeah. it was then. But um, those people are going to lose their money completely, aren't they? Uh,
1: well, um, you know, the, the whole market or, structure is quite a bit different. I mean, the simplest answer is yes. Uh, those bonds, you know, they already now trade at, at pennies on the dollar or a few, you know, dozen cents. Um, and, and so, yes, they they will not be getting their, their payments back. A lot of them are held by index funds and the like. And there will be issues with, you know, the Russian expulsion from the indexes and uh, how those are drawn down. But, you know, yes, they, that money will be lost until uh, it is eventually then, you know, exists as sort of paper out there that obscure people uh, who, you know, some connected to vulture funds and the like. Some, you know, there's still people out there who collect Russian debt from the pre Era in France for the hopes that they. Yeah, can, the French um, debt.
0: You know, but, that they and that came up Russian. under Chernenitin. I mean, Chernenitin yeah. suggested he might he might pay that French. debt. They, they did pay. actually
1: pay some of the French debt. I mean, literally, it's something like you know, point 0.1% of of the entire thing. But right. it is part of Russia's uh, you know international assistance after the ninety eight default. That technically did get um, put back together. Um, but you know, uh, yes. Uh, it, it, but now in the sort of market that we exist in these eurobond papers at some point th- th- there will be value for vulture funds or the like to try to find there whenever 10 20 30 40 soviet case, 80 uh years from now there is a, a western um OI. so that money isn't gone and dead for forever but effectively you know for the people who hold it now uh, it is. if we draw a
0: parallel with the 98 um uh, d- uh, default uh, crisis and the gko has got restructured and they didn't actually default on them, they just
1: restructured. Well, default is a restructuring. Um, When we we talk, uh, restructuring is a default, but when we talk about defaults today, it's the the standardization of cross-default clauses that really matters. So when one thing is due and you don't pay it, everything is due. That wasn't the case in the 90s.
0: No, but that that got paid back in the end. Um, And given that we know that the Kremlin is very keen to maintain its credit history and the corporate even more so that um, there is a scenario where this debt just sits there in limbo but then when finally the peace returns and you know putin dies and we have a new regime then all the talks were open and that debt will become i would again, no?
1: i would uh, well i would push back a little bit on how um much the kremlin actually cares about keeping uh strong relations with western capital markets i don't think Putin is gaming out how he could borrow from capital markets and finance. No, but not Western. Surely, surely the
0: default. I mean, the the problem for Russia here is that they're not going to borrow in New York and London anymore, but they will go to Hong Kong, Shanghai, Singapore, and to have a D stamped on your passport um, is going to cause you cost there and that's one of the reasons why they want to make yes but issues. i do
1: think you know th- that decision ultimately for chinese lending you know simply given the structure of the chinese market and how it's all originated through state entities you know that is not a decision that will be made by bankers in hong kong or shanghai that is a decision that will be made by the if they're willing to do it by the committee of the communist party mm. uh, of china and so there it matters a little less i do think it matters to putin to be able to challenge the dollar system and criticize it and um so you know a lot of this language and willingness to pay again the the amounts of money that they've paid so far are fairly small as we were discussing so the kremlin which we've already seen is willing to burn three billion dollars in ukraine uh you know nine years ago to to mess with the global uh western capital markets is willing to do you know the same happily in its own Mm. market so i i am I don't think the Kremlin's motivations in paying the debt all come from a place of saying we want, you know, capital markets to consider us a non defaulter
0: Yeah, I guess it's a question of legitimacy, which is important to put in. Uh, You you mentioned cross-default. That's another thing that's come up, the possibility of if they default on the 24th June bond then that triggers defaults across the board in lots of bonds, which have language built into them. But if there is a default in the market, everyone has the right to reclaim repayment. I think now, every
1: Russian that, euro bond now, I'm 99% sure has that cross-default language. in it. Every. Right. But doesn't that mean
0: there's going to be a cascade? I mean, June, I mean, small amount, one bond goes uh, belly up. $1 billion due this year, $40 billion outstanding. Suddenly all $40 billion come due on the same day, on the yeah. 25th of June. Is that possible? Is that how it works? That, that
1: is uh, well, one month after, but uh, you know, essentially the yeah, yeah. normal process is one month after someone will go, they'll, they'll put a claim uh, here and at the British court, they'll seek to advance acceleration. They, they could have a bondholder vote. It's one of the uh, ways to do it to, to recognize that this has happened. Um, but nobody will actually get paid um, any of that principle. What it will enable then is the starting of lawsuits going after Russian sovereign assets. Now, mm. uh, there's some precedent there, which is, there have been a whole bunch of lawsuits going on for almost 20 years now, as I'm sure you're very familiar with, um, the uh, nationalization of UKOS and, and its yeah. like the handover of assets to Das Neft. In 2014, there was a famous judgment from a Dutch court ordering $50 billion, so even more billion, than the right. we're talking about now, uh, to, to be repaid uh, to, to all those investors. Um, but not a single cent has actually been seized from the, the Russian Federation since. But right. you know, in the 90s with the default, you had a few you know, random little incidents where you know Russian planes got detained in France from so some creditor made a claim. Uh, and That was briefly a, a political spat there. And, and you will see people trying new and novel ways because uh, I'll avoid the technicalities, but there's something um, you know, there, there's a corporate veil between Rosneft as, as a uh, company and and the um, sovereign uh, itself. But you'd think Rosneft as an international oil company would be the easiest one or one of the easier ones to go after because it's shipping oil around the world. So it has valuable things that you can go mm-hmm. and try to attach. But as we've seen uh, in almost 20 years, you know, that that has not happened.
0: Mm. Tell me, though, I'm the cost of um, isn't it up to the individual bondholders to decide whether to... Trigger that clause, whether to demand immediate payment or not. There, there,
1: there is a, there, there are um, collected action clauses in the bonds um, that that. Uh, call but it's a case by case that.
0: basis. I mean, the the bondholders have to have a meeting and decide what they want
1: to the do. The bondholders have to have a meeting. That, again, I'm not a lawyer. My, uh, you know, my reading of the Russian CACs, as they're known, is that it would trigger. You know, those cross acceleration clauses would trigger it across. Um, uh, the whole class of, uh, of Russian bonds. It may be that they've changed some of the language in the 2016 uh, ones. And the thing about Eurobond language is like it usually doesn't change at all, and it's like one or two sentences that are adapted across mm. the whole market. Mm. They do, but the Russians have started bringing in a lot more changes into their own uh, after 2016 and 2017. And sometimes it's just a comma in a different place or a paragraph that's normally two being one uh, that all the legal experts are, are, are picking up now. It's possible then at the end of July, there'll be a demand for all
0: $40 billion to be paid off, but it's unlikely to happen because, as you say, no one's going to get paid.
1: Um, You just broke up for the last seconds there. Yes, it's possible there will be in July, but you you follow up? Yeah, no, I just said it's unlikely to happen though. Just because no one, yeah, totally yeah that, that that money will not change hands. Uh, paper yeah. underlying the contract, so that people can make claims in the future, uh, may change hands, but but the money will.
0: And what about the uh, credit default swaps? I mean, if there's a if all these suddenly default, I mean, in theory, anybody who bought uh, CDS, I mean, they get paid out, don't they?
1: Yeah. So there, um, uh, the International Swaps and Derivatives Association ISDA is does the one who makes that determination. Um, they have. Uh, said already that, you know, for the for the bonds with the alternative currency payment triggers, if they're going to give you rubles, that's in the bond contract language. Sorry, uh, CDS doesn't cover you, which I actually think is the right thing to do. Um, although most people who uh, deal with CDS have uh, issues with ISDA and, and don't always like its decisions. Um, but yes, I fully expect that, that ISDA will rule it in default and that those CDS will pay out, uh, at least on bonds bought that aren't uh, the post-2017 issuance. So
0: these are still large amounts of money and $40 billion, but that's nowhere near enough
1: to destabilize
0: the financial system. I mean, everybody's going to be able to absorb No, so yeah, those, you know, easy. those,
1: I mean, well, <laughs> um, of course, I, I would be foolish to say that I think banks have written their, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to be so presumptuous as to say banks have had great risk management policies with writing their CDS on this stuff, because of course, uh, a lot of the world over the last 15 years has been shaped by banks not having great risk management policies with uh, writing CDS. Uh, but the CDS market for US mortgages versus the CDS market for uh you know russian bonds is not comparable the cds market for like rhode island is probably uh larger Uh, than than the cds market for russian bonds rhode uh, island
0: real estate another way they could get compensated you mentioned that default that formally allows them to bring actions through the courts in order to seize russian assets and of course the big honeypot out there is $300 billion of central bank reserves, which has yeah. only been frozen as far as I understand, which means it technically it still belongs to the Russians. They just can't use it. But this would clear the way for cases to be brought by bond holders to seize that, those funds, that $300 billion that's being held in Europe, yeah. Isn't that what everyone's going to do? Isn't that what uh, everyone's going to go
1: after? Yes. Uh, short answer: Yes. Long answer: is It's very complicated. A lot of people have been trying to do that. With uh, it's not all reserves, but the most comparable example is in Venezuela, where the Venezuelan state oil company PDVSA owns Sitgo, a uh, very large um, U.S. pipeline network and um, uh, petrol/gasoline uh, seller. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it has two boards now, because of course the Guaido government has put in its own. Uh, but a lot of Claimants have been suing and trying to get be made whole on the money that they're owed by uh, Venezuela by going after Citgo and trying to get a piece of that pie without success uh, the, those determinations ultimately really get made at a White House level because it's the US, it's the executive orders um, underpinning those freezing of assets that judge it so I expect. Um, will have some kind of new executive orders or at least d- amendments to the existing ones uh, around Russian frozen bonds coming up in the future. But there's a whole bunch of other claimants too uh, from uh, those Yukos um, investors that we spoke about to um, primarily the one that I think will really matter here is of course Ukraine and some of the language that uh, has come out saying, you know, Russia should be responsible for um, helping to rebuild and repay Ukraine when this is all over. Uh, so, you know, I don't think it'll be that at the end of this summer, Let alone in June that the US Treasury says, oh, you know, please bondholders go and have 10% of this uh frozen pile of Russian assets. There's a whole other legal framework about actually taking those away from Russia rather than freezing them that needs to be done. Um, so you know, I hate to always say it's it's a long process and and I don't have the answer for you today, uh, but it's going to be a a, the Venezuela one has been going on for five years now, right? Uh, before anybody's gotten paid. Maybe that long in Russia. This is
0: everyone is, is
1: acknowledging
0: that, that getting hold of that 300 billion, although you know physically it's there in Europe, uh, under the European control. Von Leiden was on um, Davos yesterday and, and she mentioned this and reparations and that you know you, Russia will have to pay for reconstruction. Um, and she specifically referred to the frozen CBR assets and but phrase it if possible. And everyone who's talked about this is not taking it as a given. You kind of think that, you know, this money is ours. We just make a law saying, like, reparations, and we can use it for Ukraine. But is it just a question of of law, then, um, the legal cases?
1: I mean, it's, you know, it's certainly a big legal question, but there's also a big political question, right? You know, both for the U.S. and for for Europe. Of course, a lot of these assets are in Europe. um, But, you know, we're talking about real big picture questions about euro versus dollar, about what it means to be a sovereign and have your assets somewhere. the one example I'll frame it with, I'm not saying this is the main issue, but it may be the easiest one for uh, the, the broadest number of people to understand, is that, you know, let's say you're a uh, United Arab Emirates, right, with a gigantic mm-hmm. sovereign wealth fund uh, that broadly is an ally of the West, but occasionally has pretty significant uh, disagreements. You're going to be looking very, very closely at what's happening to another sovereign's um, assets and, and investments and how those are being handled. Uh, and, you know, there's the potential for real ramifications there that it either, you know, I don't think it'll be a U.S. versus Europe competition thing, um, but you know, certainly uh, it could see very large amounts of money from uh, other less democratic countries, um, mm. and, and their level of attractiveness of investing well, in Europe and their money there go down.
0: China, of course. I mean, it's got well three trillion dollars invested in the U.S. T. market, and uh, yeah. clearly, China and And the U.S. are on a collision course, and
1: so China must be- Well, you know, in terms of the bond market stuff, you know, China, because China has a closed capital market, I think this is a discussion for another time, so I won't go too far down it, Mm. uh, and and I'm not a China expert, but, you know, there's a codependency there, uh, in terms, you know, as we were saying, Russia earlier doesn't actually need to borrow um, a hard currency in the West. For reasons I won't go into now, China essentially needs to have uh, a large amount of U.S. Treasury holdings to have its economy function the way it does now. And in some ways, it reminds me much more of a mutually assured destruction situation with the economic Mm -hmm. uh, interdependency, at least on a credit level, not on a trade level, or um, or at least Mm -hmm. is different on the trade level. Whereas in Russia, um, you know, it's very clearly a effective Nuclear power in the US and the West with the dominance of the dollar system versus a uh, country that does not have geoeconomic weapons of anywhere near the same size. They do have oil, you know, fertilizer, commodities trade, um, but because they don't dominate those markets in the same way, while they can cause a lot of pain and disruption, it's it's not an equal set of weapons.
0: I'm just with the questions. We've got one from YouTube. It says the uh, Russian um, CDF prices have risen sharply over the past few weeks for obvious reasons, but the yields on the uh, two five and 10 year bonds have remained flat at around 10%. Is this a result of Western holders trying to get out of the market?
1: um i'm not sure about the last phrasing of that question i would say the the bonds have really you know re- remained flat because there's just not a lot of trading in them right you know people mm. aren't going to go trade uh, into them even if it's just for a reputational risk there's like maybe one or two guys uh, in, in russia who are trying to do it um but uh you know it's, it's really a, a complete collapse in, in the amount of trading of these instruments that i think is causing that and it's the to same what to really look for
0: The the domestic investors, um, they've been buying these things too. I mean, obviously in the OFZ market, it's 80% Russian, but to what extent are the Russians themselves invested into the eurobond?
1: uh it had really depended on the class of euro bonds i mean for example the sort of best known ones is is a a Russian bank got in a bunch of Mm -hmm. trouble for essentially cornering the market in the 2030 euro bonds the Russians Mm -hmm. paid those out early with part of its uh, bank cleanup uh, a few years ago and that um had caused some real price issues there the most recent one you know paid in April uh, it was something like 80 percent um held by uh domestic institutions um my you Know, rough finger in the air estimate looking at the various classes and stuff is that it's gone from 2014 when I think it was only 20-25% uh, held by uh, domestics to probably closer to 60-70% to uh, pre-invasion across mm-hmm. all
0: classes. Another question for Ahmed Buria, um, the general license 9a yeah. or c got updated um has expired but there's more exemptions there's uh, gl13 uh, which is to do with administrative payments and gl8b which is to do with energy payments and those licenses are still in effect um particularly with the energy payment one so that 28 billion dollars that russia made in april probably going to make it again in May because that exemption is still in place. Are these yeah. things going to be rolled back as well? I mean, they're in so, um
1: So my, my expectation is that uh, GL13, the administrative payments will be tightened um, but extended in, in, in some way. Uh, but uh, GL8B I think is almost certain to be extended because it, the US won't want to preempt mm. European action there. Mm. Uh, I mean, I, there's very strong opinions about whether Europe can even afford to fully cut off Russian gas uh, in, in the next year or two. Of course, Europe itself is discussing the phasing out of these um, uh, of its own oil purchases, but I think that will essentially be extended in its current form just because the US won't want to preempt Europe. But if you listen to Mark Rutte the other day, the Dutch prime minister, there may be some action on at least oil payments before then that could uh, then also be reflected in that license
0: yeah and there's one here from alexander uh um, he's asking us the exploration of the gl9c does that affect non-us holders of these bonds doesn't that basically oh. uh,
1: i mean that that, that goes back system. to the point that we were discussing um earlier uh it, it does you know because of u.s processors it can. Now, uh, Russian bonds also include words for payment through the National Settlement Depository domestically within Russia. Um, So if you're a Russian holder of Russian euro bonds, you could probably, like, technically legally still, or at least under U.S. law, and, and in terms of you know, compliance with it, uh, I think you would still be able to get payment there on the National Settlement Depository, uh, but of course, as we saw with the big bond payment due in um, April, uh, they you know effectively told people to accept rubles and we'll pay you back now rather than a week, uh, and that's what happened, and I don't think the Kremlin is at least on the principle of it going to, you know, on, the, on the principle repayments, not the moral mm. principle, um, going to be giving billions of rubles over to um, uh, Russian people who invest in these, unless there's some, you know, strategic um, slash corrupt (laughs) dealings. Um, But
0: um, uh, But there is a possibility. of fact, I mean, it can actually on a case by case basis, uh, issue individual licenses for any payment that they want to, can't it? So, I mean, there, there could be- It can, I, be don't, I
1: don't think we would see that in this situation because it would complicate things in a way that isn't good for, for the US position of desiring to complicate things because it would essentially, yeah. you know, allow people, it would, it would feed that argument that this is, you know, a uh, selective and politicized. And while I do think it's all politicized and the international debt should always be thought of uh, in a political manner. That's sort of the, thing of the whole spiel that I've based my career on for a number of years. Um, uh, so I'm very dedicated to that point. Um, uh, but, um, you know, uh, that would, would, would not be um, something I would expect.
0: So which leads to my question, what's the point of these sanctions? Um, I mean, one reason they've been suggested, as we talked about before, is that to to, to bleed Russia of what hard currency, it is earning and reduce its ability to fund the war. But as you said, the GL8B allows the energy payments to continue, and that's loads of money. It's more than Russia needs to fund the war. And we've also been saying that you know, the amount of money is not that big. And actually, this is going to affect Russia's economy in several years' time by denigrating its ability to, to raise money internationally as the budget shrinks, as the economy shrinks as a result of all of this. But that's also down the road. Um, and my understanding of sanctions is that they're a diplomatic tool which you put on another country in order to persuade them to do something that you want to. However, these sanctions look designed specifically to crush and wound the Russian economy as much as possible. And actually there's no expectation we're gonna get anything out of Russia as a result of these sanctions. And our experience with Putin is if you sanction him, he just digs in. So, so isn't that it? Is are we yeah, in I an mean- economic war?
1: 100% we're in an economic war and I think it's really important to have that framing and I think it's very bad that both Europe and America hasn't done that enough because it would be better for preparing Europeans to deal with some of the particular costs of this and then to uh, agree the sort of sticks uh, sorry the carrots that we need alongside the sticks to make this stuff more um, acceptable within Europe but 100% we're in an economic war and I think anybody who says otherwise um, is, is quite foolish now I much prefer economic war to kinetic wars right you know Mm. Um, The expression war is politics by other means, economic war is um, war by other means, and I much prefer to be dealing with losses in dollars than I do dealing with losses in lives. the uh, one other point that I would say, you know, other than that the point is really to sort of bludgeon the Russian economy, deal with the long term, is to go back uh, again. You know, one doesn't need a lot of knowledge about the, the background, but to go to the Sudan example, right? Uh, Sudan has had a bunch of political changes in the last few years. Bashir is out. Um, I'm not saying new people are all great, um, but the sort of reintegration of Sudan into the um, you know international order, rules based international order, as the Russian state likes to mock, so to speak, really came through the new government's initial negotiation with international partners, uh, both about its private debts and its intergovernmental debts that then got put back together. So in some ways, this is also something that says, "Okay, when there is a new Russia, whatever that new Russia is, this dealing with this will be the process that then um, ultimately signals the beginning of of, uh, a a new relationship. Again, Uh, uh, that's one, five or 10 years. uh, We're
0: about to run out of time, um, but you mentioned several times new Russia. And I'm just trying to take on a piece at the moment to look further down the road, not just like one, two years, but five years. Um, and assuming that Russia gets Donbass and sits on it uh, and these sanctions stay in place forever, and that the Russian economy, what that will do to it, which is obviously a great deal of damage, it's also going to, I don't know, significantly reduce Russia's oil and gas business until it can build new infrastructure east, which is going to take at least five years and cost. Tens of billions of dollars, but this new Russia, I mean, what do you think the long-term consequences of this are? Because the thing with an economic war is unlike a kinetic war where, you know, somebody loses because they're dead. The economic war, yeah. this will go on forever. Haven't we just seen a destruction of globalization? Haven't we just, you seen- just dropped
1: out for a second there?
0: I'm sorry, my German internet. But take me back to Moscow where the uh, internet so, works. Well,
1: I can't. I can't hear you for a second. But um, just really quickly on the consequences yeah. of the um, uh, economic war for Russia, the uh, you know the, the key thing that I, I think will be made is that and the point that I've been making is you know the headline ruble figures and whatever don't matter anymore. Uh, the, the interest rates don't matter. The Russian market economy is something that I see as, as already dead. Uh, and in some ways what we're seeing now mm. is sort of the zombieified version of it um, hopping along until the next thing comes. My real concern is that the only option for Russia and for the Putin regime is to go full autarky, full state command economy. And I'm not talking something that looks like China, where you have a communist party sitting atop an essential market economy, but essentially something that looks like more of a Stalinist era economy, or even a you know, North Korean Juche self-reliance uh, style. And that, you know, um, just looking at the kind of projects that Russia's going to uh, need to recover from the war in the territory, it's quite clearly plans to annex, uh, you know, Mariupol, how are they gonna get the billions that it would take to rebuild those steel factories, which were the, mm. um, you know, economic lifeblood of them and what the locals cared about so much for so many years. Um, And, uh, you know, how how do you drive up investment in a country where the economic elites are still very much wedded to um, some kind of, um, are are still wedded to some kind of uh, orthodoxy? and uh it's a very dark and, and and bleak outlook for me and i have real worries about uh what the kremlin is is uh going to have to do in the next few years to try to put an economy back together because just like you can't fight a war like you did in the stalinist era i don't think you can have the kind of five-year plans based off labor camps yeah. um that uh you know would be necessary to, to do those things um but i, I do work, see it headed down a, a very autarkic path doesn't
0: that mean that, you know, it's all over? I, I can't hear you again. Hold on, me... You can't hear me again? Yeah, now I can hear you. Yeah? Yeah. Doesn't that mean it's all over? I mean, like Russia, after the fall of the, uh, the Soviet Union. Yeah? Hold on. It just tells
1: me we've lost the space on, on Twitter. Uh, well, look, we're just... Can you hear me? I can so hear I, you. Uh, you can
0: finish on here, sure. All right. Well, we're just wrapping up i mean doesn't this mean that we had uh, the soviet union collapsed and then we had this like brief decade in the noughties where russia flourished and became a normal country and now it's all gone to shit and going forward we've gone back to cold war and iron curtain of sorts. now it's a sort of economic one and that russia's doomed because of a lack of technology more than anything else to stagnate and just fall behind the rest of the world until There's some sort of revolution.
1: I mean, it's I. I don't want to say that I agree with that because obviously (laughs) I care a lot about Russia and I have a lot of Russian friends and I want good things for Russia and you know, regardless of of, of their my disagreements or or distaste for their current political leadership. Uh, But short answer is yes. You know, as long as this. Um, government remains in power and again that's part of the western strategy uh, is is that you know we're not going to have any other uh, there's not going to be any other option for russia and russians and um of course it's not credit market access that in itself uh, offers that right and you know the late 19th century um as russia was ending serfdom and the like you know they, they had good credit market access uh from from germany and then from france mm-hmm. uh and, and and uh that money didn't go to develop people but you know the larger sanctions regime is really that way and you know one example that i uh want to um you know, I hope there's some kind of where with all these chip and technology sanctions, right? Uh, if one was in the business of exporting high-end medical equipment right now, it'd be very difficult to export high-end medical equipment uh, to, to Russia. Um, and um, mm. the, um, yeah, the, the, the real concern I have there is how this is gonna play out, uh, you know, for humanitarian impacts around the world. And again, going back to just make the point again, The economic war impact, there are, I see someone's put in a comment here, it's going to have... impacts around the world uh yeah. fertilizer grain the russians have now tied that grain blockade on ukraine uh to, to these sanctions environment and i think unless we start discussing it that way and then our governments deceptively say we need to be on a wartime footing now i do think the kremlin's invasion of ukraine is so egregious and uh such a violation of international norms that it, we should be um preparing and saying we're in an yeah. economic war but failure to do so makes it a lot harder to if you can't win a war you don't know you're fighting yeah, no, I mean, uh, harrowing,
0: uh, I was talking to Chris Rule um, just before this all started and he said, that was it. We uh, in the West are going to change mentality if we're going to cope with a showdown with Russia and put ourselves into a wartime mentality in order to cope with it because it's going to come with costs. Look, on that somber note, uh, Max, I'd like to say thank you very much for, for joining us. It was fascinating, great day. And for all of those out there who are listening on Zoom, Twitter, YouTube, um, thanks very much for joining. We'll do another one of these soon. Uh, I think we'll need to do a food one fairly soon. Um, if you're interested in following this story in more detail, then I point you to intellinewscom slash welcome, um, where you can find both a copy of this via our BNE YouTube channel, uh, the link is there. And we've, um, of course, reporting on this every day. If you want to follow the best of our stories, we do an email digest called Editors Picks, which is free. And that carries the best stories uh, from the last 24 hours. Of course, it's very heavily Ukraine focused at the moment. And finally, if you're in the game or you want to get into the nuts and bolts of the stuff that me and Max were talking about on bonds and payments, what have you, then please take a trial to our premium service, um, BNE Pro. Um, and you can have a look at that where we have uh, hundreds of stories every day from across the region. So once again, thanks for joining. Pleasure. I hope to see you next time. Goodbye.